You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Well, good morning, church. It's good to worship with you this morning. It's good to, uh, to be here. And um, uh, if, if you don't know, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be looking today at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So if you want to get your Bibles out, and let's get ready to jump into that. Now, it is a continuation of what we saw last week. This is unity within the body of Christ. Um, and really, the first verse of this chapter kind of sums up the topic. It's what Paul wanted the church of Ephesus to know, and what really he wants any church who reads this to know. So let's look at verse 1. And you read this last week, but we're going to read it kind of as a premise again this week. Verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So as we see simply, a child of God, right, we have a calling, and this calling is inseparable from the church, what Paul calls the body of Christ. Now, what we're going to see is Ephesus obviously has um, struggled with some unity issues, but this is uh, obviously not just an an Ephesus problem. Um, Lack of unity has been within the church since the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament church had unity issues. The New Testament church has unity issues. Uh, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, for example, in in, uh, verse 27 and 28 in chapter 1. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you and that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. But none of us are surprised by a church's struggle with unity. Right? It's a tale as old as time. I could pass around the mic, and we could spend the rest of today telling stories about the struggles within churches and church unity. It's actually one reason why I'm, I'm and I mean this, deeply thankful for our church. Uh, we have not struggled with many of the divisive uh, things that many other pastors and churches have to deal with. A, a lot of the things I hear happening to other pastors and churches, so much of that is foreign to us. And truly, uh, that, that's a grace of God. But just because there's unity today does not guarantee unity tomorrow. Unity can be, could quickly dissolve. Um, for example, my, my wife, she's a nurse, she works 12-hour shifts, and she leaves at about 7 in the morning, 6.45, and she gets home roughly about 8 p.m. And she works three days a week, and they're all usually back-to-back, which means when she's gone, she's gone, right? When she gets home, she just wants to go to bed, which usually means it's up to me to feed our children. Now, I have a very limited menu. Very li- I, can, I can make eggs, sausage, and I usually prepare a little fruit cut it up kind of fancy-like, and, and I'll put it on a dish. And my kids eat that at least two times a week uh, for lunch and dinner. And the, or, or I can make them pretty mean grilled cheese if I'm feeling really good. I might put some ham cheese, grilled ham and cheese. Um, sometimes I do peanut butter and jellies. But what I like to do, truly, and I don't know why, because it's, it's, so, it's like redneck fancy, but I, I get like a bunch of saltines and I put them on a platter and I put a little peanut butter and jelly on one, peanut butter and honey on another, peanut butter and a banana. Like, I, make a, I try to make a saltine sandwich as fancy as I possibly can for my poor children. And uh, that, that's, that's what I can do. I don't have much other than that. And the problem is I don't like eggs and I can't eat bread. So for dinner, I just usually consume like 12 cheese sticks that are in our, in our fridge. And so when, when Julie's gone, um, my kids become very united that they want to eat out. 
Um, they're very united on that front. Uh, and they beg, can we go out, please, please, please? And I get it, because I get sick of eating cheese sticks every once in a while, and uh, I know they get sick of eating what I can make. And what I typically tell them is, if you can agree, that's my only stipulation, we will go out if you can agree. Well, Claire thinks, always thinks she knows what to do. She's like, all right, it's Mexican. I know what dad wants. He can't resist the cheese. Let's do it. It's Mexican. We're going to Mexican. And she's already celebrating. She's putting on her shoes, her sombrero. She's getting ready to go to Mexican. And, and Maddox, on the other hand, he's had Mexican since the womb. And at this point, at age eight, he's done with Mexican. He doesn't want it anymore. And he's, he says, ah, no, 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 no. I want McDonald's. I want McDonald's. And Claire hates McDonald's as much as he hates Mexican. And so what used to be this united front quickly devolves into something else. And Claire, you know, a little manipulation, trying to be concerned about my inability to eat gluten, she looks at him and she goes, Dad cannot eat anything at McDonald's. <laughs> and he snaps back, he can take cheese sticks. And that's, he can pack himself a lunch. I want my McDonald's. Now, there's a difference in being in agreement with what we don't want versus where, what we do want. And it's easy for all of us in here to say we don't want to go there. It's a very different story for us all to agree, in fact, where we should be going and what direction we ought to be traveling. Unity is incredibly difficult. Real unity is not just rooted in what we hate, but it's rooted in what we value. And my prayer is that we can be unified in both. So as we read the passage today, I'd ask that you contemplate two things. First, how can you as an individual encourage unity in the church? I want you to look at your own conduct, behavior, and say, am I someone who encourages unity or am I promoting disunity? Secondly, I want us to remember um, that we can corporately promote unity. Remember, this church, this letter is sent to the church of Ephesus. It's not sent to an individual. It's sent to a group of people. So it was read publicly, and there was an expectation that publicly we would respond. That there would be a corporate response and a corporate movement towards unity. I have three points. It's unity requires humility, unity requires maturity, and unity requires love. Before we jump into it, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for um, just all that you've given us. The, you've lavished us with grace. You've lavished us with mercy. You allow us to study your word, to come to your throne of grace. And Lord, that's what, that's what we're doing. And we're asking for help to stay unified. Not so the New Heights banner can be glorified, but so that you can be glorified. Lord, we love you. And it's our desire to exalt you in all things. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first point is unity requires humility. Look at verse 11 in Ephesians 4. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Verse 11 is incredibly interesting and highly debated. 
what Paul means by apostles, the prophet, uh, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers has been the subject of, of many debates throughout history. Um, and as much as I would love to thrust us into the deep end of that debate, uh, I've decided not to. Uh, it's a bit nuanced, and, and even though it's a fun discussion and there's some fun disagreement, even among uh, the pastors here, uh, I would rather take that to like a podcast. And I want, so I've asked the other pastors, I want to record some of our agreements and disagreements on what we think is being talked about in verse 11. It should be released Wednesday. I would love for you to listen to it if that interests you. Um, just to give you a quick spoiler, I think the only part that is referencing pastors is the, is the last two shepherds and teachers. Um, and, and I'm going to come back to that. Uh, but what I'm more interested this morning is the humility that is implied in these verses. Because what we see is a group of people who must be dependent on each other. What we see is God has designed and structured something called the church, his body for the saints to be dependent on. We see that pastors would equip the saints, but that saints would work and labor building each other up. What it mostly simply means is that we need one another. We need each other in ministry. Think about that. God has built his church, gifted his people for the sake of one another. The chief end of man is to glorify God, but we do that in part by serving one another because we're saved for a purpose, to labor, to minister, to equip and we see the word there, equipping, right? This is the pastor's job to outfit you for battle, but that means and presupposes that you're going to the battlefield. That you are, in fact, being sent beyond this building. What I hear often, sadly by many who claim Christ, is an unwillingness to humble themselves to the structure, to the body that to which Christ has designed for our good. And you've heard it too. Uh, nothing I say here will be news to you. You've heard people say, I'm religious, I'm spiritual, I just don't like organized religion. They like the unorganized type, where there's no accountability, and where they are the head of their church rather than Christ. I've heard countless times people who have attended here for periods of time and then vanish. They say, I don't need the church. I just need the Bible and Jesus. Such statements are unbiblical and they're nonsense. 1 Corinthians 12, 17 and 18 says, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Because as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. He chose. I don't get to choose to be a part of the body. He chose me to be a part of the body, and he gifted you and I accordingly to his will, to his purpose. The question is not whether or not I ought to be part of the body. It's, am I going to be obedient to the head? 
Why encourage unity? Or, through my disobedience, why promote disunity? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians, in verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So we cannot say to one another that we do not need each other. It is not how God designed it. The Lord created the system where we depend on one another, and that's humbling. None of us here have all the answers. None of us have all the gifts. It's a humbling truth that we're to lean into. But all too often, unity is broken because we get this idea that we can do it ourselves. The concept, by its nature, is divisive. Can a part of the body remove itself and not be guilty of division? First, we must humble ourselves to God's design, which means we are to humble ourselves to one another. In truth, those who distance themselves from the church, they're... What they, what they don't love is accountability because that requires humility. What they don't like is serving or giving because that requires humility. What we don't like is to be vulnerable and investing in one another because, again, that requires humility. It's not organized or unorganized religion they love or hate. It's humility. It's humbling to the head. It's bending the knee to their king. That's what they hate. We're called to do what Philippians 2, 3 says. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But by the way, you don't have to be absent from the church to struggle with humility and unity. Right? For us here, right, we typically fall into two camps. Camp one, the look at me camp. The first camp is where we stop serving for God's glory and the church is good and it slowly perverts itself to serving for my glory and my good. For pastors and members alike, if we're not careful, we will serve only to be valued. Our chief end will be our own self-elevation, to be seen and adored, to be sought as wise. My ministry and my work no longer will build up the body or, or equip the saints because there's only one saint I become concerned with. It's me. And we become the man described by the great hymn writer, Toby Keith. You know the song. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about, number one, oh, my, me, my. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me. You know it. That becomes us. We fall prey to exploiting our gifts to find some sort of sense of value, to be valued by others. I want to feel important as a dangerous drug that kills unity. Because no longer are you serving to equip or to minister. No longer is your identity in Christ 
It becomes all absorbed into the position that you hold or the success of your ministry or the outreach or whatever it is that we're doing that's simply clothed in righteousness. Each member has been gifted not to do nothing. On the other hand, not to do everything. Not for self-promotion. Right? My gifts are not about building my brand or creating a, a cult of little berries, where I, of course, would be the elderberry. <laughs> All right, our gifts, our gifts are for the good of the body, that is, the church. Second camp are the, the do-nothings. By the way, my favorite political party in American history, if you don't believe me, go look it up. There's actually a political party in American history called the do-nothing party. Whew. They've all seen, never mind, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. You can run with it in your mind. Anyways, uh, I want to show some understanding as it comes to the group of do-nothings. I, I want to show some compassion, because I understand if you're, if you're new here and you haven't been around here very long, um, it's, it's nerve-wracking joining a church and joining a team of people you don't know. It's, it's incredibly nerve-wracking. You don't know how a team functions. You don't know how it's supposed to go. You don't know who the other people are, especially if you're on a team where you have to interact with them. I get it, right? And what if you sign up for a team, and then you're like, oh, I don't really like this team. And then it's weird because then you have to leave the team. There's a, I get why. It's nerve-wracking. There are people that have children. They're new moms and dads, and really that takes them out of commission for a while. I understand that. There's some of you who your job is demanding and you just can't be here weekly. It's just not, it's just the reality. Your job takes you away. I, there, listen, I want you to know there is, there is compassion that, and grace that you should be met with. I also want to acknowledge that we as pastors may not be as accessible as what we think we are. It is our goal as you come here for us to care for you, to plug you into a team, to get you serving and get you knowing people. I know, I know for a fact that sometimes we share the blame for why people are not serving. There's people who said, I want to serve, and then I'm like, gotcha, and then the memory's gone. It's just gone, and I forget about it. And I know that we have to do better in that. But there are many in this do-nothing camp whose concerns are not for the people of God. They're only concerned about what they get and what they deserve, about their priorities and their preferences. There are some of you who've been here for an incredibly long time. You've been coming to New Heights Church for a long time. You've been a Christian for even longer. Yet, you serve no one. You do not serve your church, and you don't intend to. You don't have a desire to. You will offer complaints, but you will hold back a helping hand. My prayer is that dies. And I want to also say, you don't have to serve on Sunday mornings to serve. We have many people who serve faithfully throughout the week and do ridiculous things because they love you all. Because you're their family. And it's amazing to see. They don't get paid. They're not pastors. 
We are called to serve the people of God. And if you've been here for a long time and you haven't served anyone but yourself, that's a problem. You need to acknowledge it. You need to repent of it. The truth is, you have what we need. And we need what you have. It's God's design, like the body. And it's time for some of us to stop bucking against it and embrace it. If we know someone, this is where a corporate response is needed. Know someone who's struggling to serve for a variety of reasons. We come along them, we walk with them, and we try to plug them in and encourage them. We fight and labor for their growth because we are our brother's keeper and we are our sister's keeper. We must do it because unity inevitably slowly breaks apart when half your body refuses to labor. When we retreat towards apathy, it breeds frustration and ignites animosity towards the do-nothings. It wears out the faithful and the devout become the burned out. To think beyond ourselves for the sake of unity, it requires humility, but also it requires maturity. That's the second point. Unity requires maturity. Now, I want to look at Ephesians 4, and I want to, I, only verse 13 and 14 will, uh, will show up on the screen, but I want, to, I want to kind of give it a runway, kind of put everything in proper context. I want to start at verse 11, if you have your Bible open. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I think it's interesting that Paul mentions maturity as a byproduct of the church ministering to itself. Because it goes against that notion that, that we whisper to ourselves, I don't need anyone else. Without the church, we remain like infants. And those who refuse to plug in, they become like children, naive children. I ran away when I was eight years old. I decided at this point uh, I was done with my home. I, you know, I don't know even what happened, I, to be honest with you. I can't remember what, what my mom did. I, I got along. I was always worried to hurt my mom's feelings. But this day, whatever happened, I'd had enough. I was moving out west. And so I went and got my bag and was decided, you know, thinking, okay, what do I need to start a new life? Um, and I remember what I packed. I don't remember what she did, but I remember what I packed. I went and got uh, a jar of peanut butter, and a spoon. I'd still pack that if I ran away today. Those are two things that are a necessity, I think, to life. So I went and got my peanut butter and spoon. I got a box of Little Debbies like you do anytime you're traveling. I got a stuffed animal, and I got a knife, but not a real knife. It was like a Rambo knife. Uh, it was a toy knife, and it came with like a little Rambo headband. Um, and so this is what I packed. I packed peanut butter, sugar, and toys. That's what I equipped myself with. But I was a child. I felt like a child. 
I reasoned like a child. I had no clue what I would need on this journey. The immature often don't know what they need. They don't know how to equip themselves. They think they do. But just like I was at eight, so too are many of us who live in adolescence, spiritual adolescence, confused on what we really need, thinking we're already grown when in all reality, spiritually, you're, you're just confused and scared children. And because of that, if we fail to be involved in one another, then we will not be used to mature one another. And what we get is a risk of our brothers and sisters being hurt. Look at the risk. This is why it's important for you to be a part of someone's life, not only for your own growth, but for their growth. Partly it's for their protection. Look again at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God uses us to mature each other for our own protection. Because spiritually, the spiritually immature are not really rooted. They're gullible. They're easily deceived. Think about it. Children believe anything. Anything. It is sad that the church is plagued with slews of man-childs. It's a problem. Spiritual infants posing as men. Spiritual infants posing as fathers, posing as pastors. It's a problem. All tossed to and fro. Listen, it ought to be your goal to grow, to learn, to grow in, in knowledge and also holiness. That requires discipleship. It requires others that the Lord uses. There are a slew of false doctrines that no doubt destroy and cloud uh, your understanding of the gospel of grace. Um, and Paul most likely would have been speaking to two groups of people. One of them are the pagan Greek philosophers uh, who were teaching Gnosticism. And simply put, Gnosticism is that in which demonize all things material, but only promotes things that are... If it's spiritual and invisible, it's good. Physical material, it's bad. Um, they would, you know, things like, you know, wine, wealth, and beauty, right? Those are all physical things. So by their very nature, they're wrong and sinful, rather than seeing them how Scripture describes these things. If used wisely, they're blessings. Also, he spoke to a group known as the Judaizers, another group that was trying to cloud the understanding of the early church's uh, concept of the gospel and grace, which preached that you must get saved by works. You have to do something in order to be saved. You've got to get baptized to be saved. You have to read the right Bible to be saved. You have to come to church so many times to be saved. And if you don't, you'll lose it. Getting it and keeping it, it's all on you. These are lies where countless men and women 
countless spiritual children have fallen prey to because they failed to the lie that God's grace was not enough. Which is why we are to be embedded in each other's lives, to remind one another, to tell each other the beautiful truth of God's grace, reminding ourselves of the gospel daily. so that we can hear and discern those deceiving schemes that are meant to divide, that are meant to destroy unity by telling you that what God has provided is not good enough, that you need more, something else. I don't know about your house, but our house teaches, uh, we teach our kids about tricky people. Tricky people are people you don't want your kids around. You know what I'm talking about. You can fill in the gap. And we tell our kids about tricky people because we tell them signs of what tricky people do, right? Tricky people don't want you to communicate to your parents. They want you to hold back from your parents. They want, you, they, they want to lead the children away from the words of your parents. We try to tell them. Tricky people don't always look strange. They don't always drive vans with creepy mustaches. But sometimes they do. We do this because we love our children and we want them to know the truth. And that is that people, there are people, tricky people, that want to hurt our children. We know that. But listen, Scripture is saying the same thing to you. The truth is, there are people that want to hurt you. They want to deceive you. They want to corrupt you. And they will use human schemes. They'll use their craftiness their faulty human logic in order to do so. It is why we're called to be grounded spiritually, standing firm in the faith. To be spiritually mature isn't simply to know a lot of Bible verses, right? It's not being at every church function. It's walking by the Spirit. It is what Galatians 5, 22-24 says. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's doing and, and acquiring these things while avoiding walking in the flesh, which is described as divisive and ungodly, among, among other things. Spiritual maturity is being able to discern, having wisdom, and who was the source of wisdom? But God himself. It is desiring to be godly, to be holy, and to run from those things that cause you to sin and stumble. It's being wise enough to know that you need God's grace daily. That in some aspect of life, each and every one of us is but a child. A child who needs their father. It's thinking about your own failures before tearing in to another over theirs. It's recognizing that each of us needs to mature somewhere in our life. But what we see is that no one, by God's design, is striving to maturity alone. Our last point is unity requires love. Look at verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. We see two parts. We see that we are to speak truth, but also in love. I know that I have been guilty of speaking truth not so lovingly. And believe it or not, when you do so, that truth isn't received all that well. But words are a funny thing. Incredible thing. A gift, really. I'll never forget, I think of it often, both times my wife told me that we were having children, that she was pregnant. I remember the conversations sealed in my brain by the grace of God. I remember the conversation before our wedding in the back of the church. I remember when she said, I do. Words can make a heart flutter. They can make you feel overwhelming joy. Speech like fire, it's, it's not just useful, it's beautiful. It can illuminate the darkest areas of our lives. It can bring warmth, it can bring comfort. But like fire, if words are not controlled by love, they can set a life ablaze. They can destroy They can consume, destroying trust, destroying relationships, destroying your ministry. James 3, 6 says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Our words, they're powerful. The Lord gave you a gift to speak, to communicate, not to tear down the body of Christ, not to be silent towards the body of Christ, but to speak truth and love, to build up, to encourage. The phrase to speak truth and love, and I I realize Truth sometimes is incredibly difficult, and speaking truth in love does not mean to ignore difficult or even painful topics. To speak truth in love is is to be honest. The love here is not simply the deliverance of the truth, but the motive in which we communicate that truth. If our motive is not love, then it's self-serving, which goes against the unity that we're called to. Let's go back to Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. It says, Rather speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We see here, Paul makes this beautiful comparison between a human body, the physical body, and the mystery that is the spiritual body of Christ. Where we see Christ is the head, and though we are connected, or through him we are connected, he leads us. And what I love here is that even in this description, we see there's a diversity of members in that body. That each of us are very different as it ought to be. 
We have different gifts, talents, hopes, interests. But look back at verse 16. It says, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. My prayer is corporately we want this. That we want to be working properly, not only for our own growth, but for each other's growth. In love of one another, but more importantly, the great the beauty of, of helping someone love and follow their king better. What a privilege you get. And likewise, a privilege someone has in your life to do the same for you. Church, I hope, I hope you care about this. I hope you really, really care about unity within your church. If you want unity, if you want humility, if you want maturity and love, there are things you're going to have to give up. There are things you're going to have to sacrifice. But what I want you to ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it? What is worth not being obedient to your king? New Heights, you will have to fight for unity. And in doing so, you will have to fight against culture's extreme obsession with individualism. You will have to fight against modern consumerism because neither knows anything about sacrifice. It knows nothing about humility and surely it knows nothing about love. So may we be held together by the word of the Lord, by his gospel his grace, his death and resurrection, which has brought us together in the first place. Unified for a purpose, and I pray unified for a mission. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.